The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. 10 past 9, you are with SFM 104 to 107. As I mentioned, our guest presenter for this morning is the acting director of the District 6 Museum. She's also the manager of the Collections, Research and Documentation Department of the museum. I would imagine that is probably the most important job at the museum. It's Christiane Julius, and she has worked there for 12 years. Christiane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Michelle. You know, there's so much to talk to you, and I feel like we're simply picking up on a golden thread. The golden thread, of course, being that a little earlier we were talking to um, the CEO of the, uh, the the Castle of Good Hope. Um, yes. So, so there's definitely a conversation that's that's about to take place. But I'd like to start with you personally and your interest in heritage, your, your studies in heritage, and certainly the concept of the curator in a museum as well. How did it happen for you? Well, I think, you know, when I was younger, I grew up thinking that I wanted to be an archaeologist. Ha, and yeah. I think once I realized there was a lot of science involved, I sort of went in another direction. Um, but I think I was always interested in sort of understanding how stories that I didn't hear growing up, you know, stories yeah. about your community's history, about your family's history, like where did that exist in museum spaces in Cape Town and how could I figure out how to make history a more tangible thing and not just a book that you read. And so I think for that reason, I was really drawn to museums. And I think specifically because uh, I think I was lucky enough to sort of, you know, be around. I was young for the first democratic election. It really was a question of, okay, so here we are, we are stories. Um, and so I was lucky to find a space at the District 6 Museum where I thought, well, I can I can see my family's history in it, I can see other communities' history in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you couldn't find that that much in the early days yeah. of getting democracy. So, Krishna, before we go in, in depth into that, I'm going to take you back to that idea where you said uh, when you were very young you wanted to be an archaeologist. I have to say, so did I. And, <laughs> I, and I'm wondering... I'm trying to remember for myself what it was that made me think this is so exciting. And I feel like it was um, images in a book that I saw at a very young age of the pyramids and the pulling up of the sarcophagus. And I'm trying to wonder what it was for me. What was it for you that you thought, I I want to be able to pull this out of the earth and, and discover what it is? To be quite honest, I think it was Indiana Jones. <laughs> um, but, but I also think that, you know, a few years later, as you're looking at how collections were unethically sourced, yes. um, Indiana Jones becomes very problematic. Yeah, but I exactly. think it was sort of a romance in terms of this idea of finding a treasure yeah. and being able to sort of tell stories through this treasure. Yeah, absolutely. I do love that idea of like, I think if I was had another life, I probably would be one of those people who run around with those metal detectors, just tweeting yes. over the ground with some possible beeping over the ground with some possibility of seeing what I might find. <laughs> yeah. So, so Krishna, you, you obviously went and um, you, you were a history and museum graduate at the University of the Western Cape and the University of Cape Town. Yeah. And that does talk to, um, you talk about how collections were taken. And we've been following these stories recently uh, in the UK as well, but also in France, is what is the ethical collection and what is the unethical collection of history? Talk to us a bit about that. I mean, I, I, 
universe. Like, I think firstly I would say that I would really sort of credit the University of the Western Cape and sort of the lectures I had there for really, um, at the time, I think it was maybe 1999, and they were really setting the standard for understanding what transformation should look like in our sort of national institutions. Yes. Um, but also trying to think about, you know, what is going to be the impact of tourism on how we consume our history, um, how do we imagine these new um, community museums, and so they were really sort of formative in sort of helping students, and not only from Cape Town and South Africa, but from the continent, actually think about that. So, so that was a really exciting time to be studying, I think. Um, for us, I think in South Africa, we, we, have a, we have a legacy of especially cultural institutions that only spoke about Afrikaners nationalist history mm. and completely erased a really sort of integrated relationship that everybody who was within Cape Town and South Africa um, mm. was an integrated relationship that is actually just missing, that was missing from the story. Yeah. And I think that, um, and there was also a lot of racist um, um, science and racism that sort of fueled how people collected. Yes. So in the early formative years of sort of our, our national museums, it was about being able to prove that people had smaller brains or they were sort of a lesser form of women. And collections, even human remains, were collected in that way. Um, sometimes cultural artifacts important to groups which are sort of plucked out of context, yes. described and being sort of housed in national museums as though they, they could exist outside of that context, and they really actually can't. Um, and so I think there's a legacy that national museums have to deal with in the sense that there was no permission, there was no consent given to how these items were collected. Um, these items were collected either... Um, in very sort of um, traumatic circumstances, either through the course of battles that were fought, in the course of actually sort of um, um, ridding people of the land. And so I think the, our, our national collections are really sort of, they're almost they're saturated with that kind of trauma, that kind yeah. of um, thinking about what do we do with these collections now. And I think, so, so that is an entire <laughs> conversation that they would need to think about. And even a site like the castle, which I think is really trying to embrace what it meant as a symbol of power in Cape yeah. Town. Um, and so they've been doing that kind of work of sort of like just unpeeling the layers that exist. So it's not just about military, not just about Dutch colonialism. Yeah. Um, and so they've been doing that work. And I think the National Museums have also uh, are doing that work, but their burden is quite big. Um, it means that to go back, in Cape Town, for example, it's about traveling back to the community in case it ends. Um, or to the Northern Cape to figure out um, what that artifact actually means, um, how, what it means to the community, and how do you really think about re-accessioning collections? Um, I think people use the term decolonizing at the moment. Yeah. Um, but it's about deaccessioning collections, understanding um, what... What does, what for those of yeah. our listeners, what does deaccessioning a collection mean? So... If you are, and we're going to get on yeah. to the idea, you mentioned um, community-based museums, and of course District 6 is the first yeah. community-based museum in South Africa. But if we talk about a museum deaccessioning, does that mean that they are getting rid of? Does that mean they are selling? What does it mean? Okay, so it can mean different things. I mean, each, you know, like museums are about order to degree and archives are about order. Um, and so they, they're given a particular number to indicate sort of where they are in the collection. And with deaccessioning, you're basically saying that you're taking the item out of the collection, uh. no longer formally part of the collection. 
Um, and in a sort of very sort of linear way, it's, you either hand it back to the community or for, for whatever reason, it's no longer formally part of the collection. I think the accessioning in the context of our national museums, and honestly, um, um, it's really about understanding rather the, the relationship between what was taken and the community that was taken from. And how do you create that relationship between um, the curators, the collections managers, um, you know, the people who work at museums and the understanding yeah. of what that, that object means? Um, yeah. We're chatting to Christiane Julius, who is the acting MD of the District 6 Museum. She's also the manager of collections, research and documentation at the museum. The museum, of course, the District 6 Museum, was the very first community-based museum in South Africa. And when we come back after the break, we're going to find out what that actually means. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. 20 past nine, you are with SAFM, and our guest presenter is the acting director of the District 6 Museum. We're looking at the museum. It's the first community-based museum in South Africa. Christian A., thank you so much for joining us. What do we mean by a community-based museum? Because I imagine, and I stand to be corrected, that it means that the community draws the collection together, if that makes any sense. I think, yeah, that does make sense. The community draws the collection together and they also sort of determine how, what our future direction looks like, how we plan for our archive, how we plan our education and our exhibitions work. Um, and, you know, that can be quite a, a common sentence that all museums talk about. But I think with the Six Six Museum, um, we really work hard to ensure that we, are, we don't position ourselves as experts in what the Six Six was or what it was like. And that the expertise that we, the experts that we're dealing with are actually community members um, and the members of growing up living in District 6. Um, on the surface, we look like a, a normal museum. We have the education department, exhibition department, and archives. But I think we spend the, our entire year engaged in workshops with um, our seven six members. So people who belong to seven six membership clubs, who are former residents of District 6 or other areas of removal in Cape Town. Um, and we come together on a monthly basis, on a weekly basis, and they sort of drive our aesthetic direction, they drive um, the kinds of work that we want to talk about. They also drive the kinds of conversations that we want to have in the city, especially the city of Cape Town that is so severely impacted by social apartheid. Yeah. Um, we have so much inequality. And so, um, so the concerns that ex-residents have around how the city is being managed, racism in the city, um, all those discussions within guys, the public dialogue that the museum has as well. So, so you know, I listen to you and I think that what's very powerful about it is that it is truly a, a democratic process for the museum where the um, community is able to suggest, as you say, the look, the feel, the conversation of the museum. That in itself must be very challenging because uh, the more democratic it is, the more voices you have. That's Probably the most challenging thing. So, so we sometimes, so usually by December, we feel fatigued <laughs> because it's been a year of like heavy dialogue with people. Um, I think you know we, we can talk about how community members contribute to this, that, or the other, but we also try to, to remind people that sometimes, as a museum, um, as people who work there with their own set of politics um, and belief systems. 
you also come into direct conflict with what you know the six sixes are talking about. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes what has been, become very clear over 25 years of doing this with people over a long period yeah. is that that dialogue, that, that relationship that you have with people allows you to have difficult conversations. So yeah. if we are talking about, for example, just the impact of spatial apartheid, the, the fact that we, I mean, South Africans carry the burden of the Group Areas Act and how people were racially divided into yep. these group areas. And it, it, it colors our interactions with each other. And I think that sometimes with a, a generation of the 60s, you still have, you still, you still hear that prejudice against other people. And as a museum, that obviously doesn't, that, those are not the values that you hold on to. Sometimes you have to have very difficult conversations about um, belief systems. So why do you think this about another group of people? What is it that has actually led to your thinking about this? And having to unpack how apartheid has really sort of um, indoctrinated many South Africans around other people. Yeah. And I think those difficult conversations are sort of almost sometimes the hidden conversations. It's not the public work of the museum. It's not just like, you know, the exciting exhibition. Um, it's, it's really sort of the deep work of trying to, to refigure what it means to be a Catonian and a South African. Um, yes. That our attitudes change. Um, yeah. I imagine as well um, that one of the challenges would be you are talking to people who have a history and, and, and woven into that history is grief, like massive yeah. grief, grief, massive anger. And in order to tell the story, you, you, you want to tell the story of the grief and anger, but you also need to take a, 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 an approach which is a step back in order to tell the story. Yeah. I think, you know, when you're working with people, it's, it's, it's about it's individuals who are telling you very personal, um, traumatic moments that have yeah. happened to them. Um, and we do have group conflicts our workshops where people are able to share that and they get validation and affirmation from other people. Um, yeah. But I think it is, it is something that we, 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 don't, we don't try and, and unpack just simply to like, interview and interview with somebody. They tell us their life story, yes. um, and now we have it on record, and you know, it's important because it's on record. I think, um, especially with the, the, with the trauma that the six sixes and many, I think, South Africans experience at the hands of the Group Aiders Act, yeah. um, one way that the museum really relies on, in, on unlock, but it's, to unlock that path is through creative acts. So yes. we really believe in the power of creativity, of um, art-based methodology. Um, we, the six sixes get to sort of reimagine, um, you know, the, the, the six six site now yes. and what memorialization could look like on the site. So we involve them in needle-making workshops. Um, we have a group of women under the banner of a project called Hayston Base, and they come in every Tuesday and they are crafting and they are sort of growing on the memories as women living in the 60s. Wow. Um, and they really, so they are the ones who, you know, we hand in the tools, we say this is what we are thinking about, and then they run with sort of expressing that creatively. Um, and it's amazing, you see 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds who have created a mural in the 6-6 six, six around um, a particular maternity hospital that was very important to them. And they are the ones who are making decisions about colors, about images, <laughs> about placement. Yeah. Um, and they're physically putting up the mural as well. And so for us, that is uh, it's a very important way to, to create a, a space for people to express both the joy of living in the 6-6 six, six, 
the difficulties of living in, in dyslexics as well as the, the trauma. So we're going to go into your next song, which is, of course, the fabulous Mac McKenzie and the Goma yes. Captains. Uh, any particular reason why you've chosen that song, apart from, of course, that uh, Mac is is just one of the most extraordinary people? Yeah, I think, I mean, so the Museum Sound Archive is, is you know, we collect idol histories, and so there's a lot of idol histories that we have. But the early focus of our sound archive was really on sort of um, um, the tradition of Cape music and what is Cape music and Cape jazz. Um, and Mac, McKenzie, Hilton, Shoulder, like, Lang Adam sort of um, musicians like Billy Bell, they were really sort of um, formative to the, to the founding of our sound archive. And for me, Mac and the Guma captain sort of represent sort of a new phase of Guma. Absolutely. A, a, besides what we hear in terms of carnival and traditional Cape music, um, he really takes it to another level. And I think the song really embodies, um, I think a wish by all Capetonians is that we, we embrace each other as opposed to sort of keeping to these racialized group areas that the process imposed on us. The choice of our guest presenter, Christian A. Julius, Mac McKenzie and the Guma Captains with Healing Destinations. She's a total healer. She came in, she was bearing coffee. She's just like a, like a, she's a glorious, glorious person. Who is she? She's Zykon. <laughs> the Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. Don't forget at 10 o'clock, it's the lovely KG. She'll be with you for seasons from 10 o'clock until 1 o'clock playing you fabulous music. So our guest presenter today is Christian A. Julius, the acting director of the District 6 Museum, but also the manager of collections, research and documentation. Christian A., obviously one of the massive challenges of any museum has been over the last year, the fact that COVID has closed many places down and uh, that the numbers have shrunk both financially and logistically and otherwise. What have you had to do to rethink and support a museum which is a community museum and therefore not majorly supported in any way by government? I mean, well, for the first time, I think we, we really sort of appeal to the public for direct donations literally to keep our doors open. Yeah. So in September, we had a, a campaign that was sent a love letter to the District 6 Museum. Yeah. And the, love, the love letter was really, um, the six Sixers used to call the eviction notice a love letter in a, you know, in a very <laughs> cynical and sort of funny way. Um, and so we were just asking people to now send love letters to us with care and affection and the, the, the campaign has really been a success. Um, we were able to raise um, up to 1.5 million in the space of, I think, two months. Um, and that really just allowed us to keep our doors open half-time and to keep stock on for half-time as well. We, we, as an independent museum, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult space to be in because a lot of the questions people ask us is, so why isn't the state supporting you? And we say, well, the state does support us in the sense of um, certain projects, the project funding, but not operationally. Yeah. And for the museum, we, we do want to keep our independence. Absolutely. Um, our independence allows us to critique um, the state. It allows us to sort of critique policies that we see unfolding in the city. 
um, and allows us to have a political voice and not just a, a historical voice around this ethic. Yeah. Um, and so I think for us, keeping our independence is, is very important. Um, and I think there does need to be sort of um, a shift in understanding how we need more independent heritage projects, community projects um, that are supported by the state in some way, but are still allowed to sort of just keep um, some critical voice available to them. You have, uh, as one of your guests, she's on the line right now, Shannon Van Veek, co-organizer of the Save the Six campaign. You've chosen, Shannon, I assume, to talk about the Love Letters campaign and the campaign to uh, ensure that the museum survives. Yes, um, Shannon and a, a group of people that she knows, all have young people who have the six, six connections in their families, they basically came to us in September and said, like, we don't want the space to, to close, how can we help? And they sort of devised this Instagram auction, which for me, as an older person, you know, I feel like it's <laughs> my brain around what exactly that means. But they put in such incredible hard work. Um, they've done it for free. Um, and they've really sort of illustrated to us that there is a, a different audience out there, actually, an audience that might not have come to the museum as high school students, that might not be part of our program, but they do see the museum as a symbol or, or as a um, that needs to remain open um, so that we can have those important discussions about what the city of Cape Town can look like. So, Shannon, we do have you on the line. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Michelle and Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Shannon, tell us about the Save the Six campaign and how you got involved. Definitely. So, um, as Chris had said, um, the campaign is made up of a network of collaborators who've all volunteered their time because they have this vested interest in the survival of the museum. Um, so basically what we did is we saw on Instagram um, that the museum was possibly closing and we decided to just kind of get together a group of people who all have digital and kind of like artistic skills um, and we wanted to aggregate all of that and mobilize community resources, really tap into a younger generation of people who are very interested in discussing um, narratives and discourse around identity and then aggregate all of those skills and put it behind the District 6 museums. But we could first raise funds to cover the operating costs or to assist in that. And then also to create connections between younger people um, and the museum so that, yeah, we can like come up with more of these really great projects. So talk to us about how you actually did that, because, I mean, what's interesting is you are a communication strategist, but as um, Chris Janae was saying, is you really started to look at using technology and digital strategies to do this. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think this is all attributed to the skills of the team. So our core organizing team was made up of myself. um, And as you said, I'm a communication strategist with a background in advertising and marketing. And then Natalie Moodley, who's an illustrator and a graphic designer, who also comes from that background, and Gemma Shepard, who's a photographer and creative director. So really, we felt like we had the networks and we had the skills to be able to do this. And the way it happened is once we sent a proposal to Chris and she gave us the go-ahead, um, we reached out to Orms and between 10 and 5, and they yes. actually came on board and partnered with us. So we're really grateful to those two teams because... They really gave this campaign legs. So let's um, just let's just clarify let's just clarify that for our listeners. Orms, of course, is the photographic company, and between ten and five is another digital agency who do amazing social impact work as well. 
Definitely, yeah. Between Ten and Five is like a digital publications yeah. um, platform, which is really great because they've in touch with the arts community, um, and we hosted the auction on their platform because they've actually pioneered, or in the South African context, this Instagram auction format. Um, yeah. So we knew that they were the perfect people to partner with. Um, and then, yeah, we also partnered with um, Business Arts SA, um, provided some funding for the project, which was really great. Yeah. But I guess the the real kind of like MVPs in the auction um, part of this campaign were all of the artists who signed up and who donated their work um, so that we could sell it through this Instagram auction. Um, and, and I think we raised over 100,000 rand for the museum. So, I mean... We, we managed to do the organizing, but we really, really are grateful to all of the people who contributed um, work to be auctioned. Shannon, I, I'd, I'd like to know, I suppose this is a question to both of you, um, Chris Shanae as well. Um, is this idea of what you said, Chris Shanae, of young people engaging in a narrative of history and wanting to interrogate it further? And I think particularly as we look over the last 20 odd years, people assume that those storylines have been forgotten. And yet they are storylines that, that should not be forgotten because they talk immediately to our present. Talk to us how we get someone who is maybe 13 or 14 interested in this particular conversation. So, okay, so I'll tackle that, that very difficult question first. Um, so I think for us, like how we traditionally reach young people is through our education work. And our education work is really fantastic in the sense of um, putting young people through their paces in terms of um, understanding what a past is, because as young people, they, they're born these. They, they don't necessarily understand why or how a past could exist. And so we have a fantastic sort of education program that really puts them through their paces in terms of discovering um, assumptions about themselves, assumptions about where they grew up. Yeah. Sort of really sort of exploding that idea in their mind and really getting them to see the city differently through the lens of a apartheid, but also at the same time having to reimagine what an integrated city of Cape Town looks like. Yeah. Um, and so I think we've done that in terms of sort of a very traditional way to school visits, to customized workshops with um, 13-year-olds, up to the 20-odd-year-olds as well. And yeah. I think... What it has shown us is that people are hungry to understand the city that they're living um, or the community that they're living because it hasn't really been told to them in this way before. Um, and I think what we really sort of latched onto, I think, with, with, with Shannon and the team and what we have began to understand is that there are also people who've never been to the museum who need to engage with us yep. really differently through social media, through sort of like online platforms. And I think for the museum, that is going to be the task that is going to be with us in the next few years, is understanding how do we um, give voice to the questions people are asking about the communities, about the identities, um, and then also just bring that onto online sort of um, place that we, that's how they communicate, that's, that's the space that they inhabit. Um, and how do we then create programs and packages that speak to them on those platforms? You know, um, Krishna, you, you mentioned something, and I'll, I'll throw this at, at you, Shannon, which is, is critical. You say, you know, that potential, you know, in, in talking to those 12 year olds and 13 year olds, you were using quite traditional means to engage with them. I imagine and that there are other opportunities, uh, social media being the obvious one, to really take that conversation further. 
No, definitely. I think that's why we felt like we needed to reach out to the museum. Um, so the museum had just set up an Instagram page very recently, and the community growth was exponential. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't because of the um, the they were putting out like lots of advertising or lots of flashy content. It was just because the essence of the museum was so appealing. Yes. Um, and what we wanted to do was tap into that, um, and then just kind of like explode it. So I guess the skills that that our team bring to um, the incredible archival work and the educational work that the museum has is the ability to take it out of those four walls um, or out of whatever um, traditional context they sit in and then move it to a space where we can make video content, where we can do podcasts and we can appeal to a younger audience who we know are on these social media channels. Um, So the next leg of the Save the Six campaign, which we're going to kick off in January, um, is a content creation piece. So um, we've um, put out a call to, to lots of lots of creators and lots of them have come back and they've got these ideas that they want to implement. So everything from exhibitions to films oh, um, yeah. we'll be working on next year to retell stories that are within the museum's walls on these digital platforms and widen the audience, both um, those who are coming to the museum and those who are looking and, and learning from this content online. It's absolutely brilliant, Shannon. You know, um, uh, Christian, we've just had a message from one of our listeners saying, morning, I'd love to know if Noor Ibrahim is still involved in the museum. I have his book and I love it. Noor is definitely still still with us. He was with us in 1994. Yeah. When we opened our doors and he's still with us. Fantastic. You know, the the mention of a book, Christian A., I'm sure people go, are there great narratives and stories? I mean, there are plenty, but you may know which ones are good for uh, our listeners, that people could read about District 6. Perhaps you can mention one or two. Yeah, so I think the, the, the book that always comes to mind is Salazashili District 6 by Nubuyo Mwane. Um, so, and she writes a really fantastic account of, of people, like people living in District 6 in Cross Street in particular. And the book is important because a lot of people see the museum as um, a colored place in, in the way that the first state category yeah. was distinct. And so, Nambuya really tells the story of the African community living in District 6 and also reminds us that African people were removed long before the 1960s under first state. Um, and I think. It's a story that South Africans forget, but I also think that the 66s sometimes forget um, and forget really how integrated the community was. And so her book really shines a wonderful spotlight um, on her community as well. Another book, and this is probably shameless plugging, but it's a fantastic <laughs> book, is that we have a recipe book um, called the 668 from Base And it's books that are sort of, you know, based around traditional dishes people would have every day of the week. You know, so chesmurs, snooks, fat and fatters, um, stop, cook, all those kinds of things. But what's really fantastic about the book is, as I was talking about, um, the 66s who drives the creative interpretation of the past, um, the, the book really exemplifies that. Yeah. Um, and it has these lovely biographies of all the participants. And it's real stories in the sense that, you know, it's not just nostalgia. It's, it's also people reflecting on... What, how difficult it was to grow up as a young person in the 60s. You, you had to take care of the children, the, the young children. You had to clean house. You had to make food. You were given quite a lot of responsibility, and you weren't necessarily rich. 
Okay, so to just give yeah. it, we need to go to a break, but just put out the name of that recipe book again. It sounds amazing. So the District 6 Hayes Kumbay's Cookbook. The District 6 Hayes Kumbay's Cookbook. Yeah. Okay, it sounds amazing. And I'm assuming that if people are interested in it, they should go to the District 6 Museum. They can go to the museum. We have an online shop, so they can just go to our website or they can visit exclusive books as well. Go to Exclusive Books, guys. Go to District 6. Buy the book because it talks to our heritage, but our food, which is, of course, our heritage as well. We have had a message from someone saying um, the network connection today is very bad. I'm really sorry. We hope that it improves for you as well. Perhaps you can tell us which area you live in, and we can pass that on to Centec. We're chatting to Christian Julius, who is from the District 6 Museum, South Africa's very first community museum. And we'll be chatting to a second guest right after this. The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown. So Christian Julius is the acting director of the District 6 Museum in Cape Town. And uh, we've been talking about the campaigns used to ensure that the museum continues and uh, also the kinds of narratives that the museum is involved in. Your second guest, uh, is someone who strikes a very interesting space in the conversation. Fatima Swartz is the Director of Programs at the Institute for Healing of Memories. Krishna, tell us a little bit about Fatima and her work. Um, so Fatima is somebody that um, has been part of the museum's life for a really long time. Um, we usually co-host or sort of co-facilitate programs with young people that she works with. Um, and I think the Institute focuses really on whether it's younger people or older people, really getting people together to talk about, um, like sometimes what we call it sort of the everyday experience of a past day, um, and how that impacted them as people, as individuals, and how in sort of coming together after 1994, what does it do to have conversations around one's trauma, one's experience, one's assumptions about other people? And I think the Institute for the Young Amenities really puts... Um, it's money where its mouth is, um, and so they do fantastic work in communities all over Cape Town, facilitating sure. these workshops with young people, with older people. Um, and I think for us as a museum, they're sort of very inspirational in how they hold processes together for people, take them on a journey, um, and really create connections between people. So, Fatima, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation, and... Lovely to be with you. Fatima, we, 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 we went online as a team before we came into this interview and we were just saying what extraordinary work your organization is doing. And I think it's work that we've been talking about uh, throughout the show is this idea of uh, drawing people together on a spectrum instead of like allowing them to sit on a binary uh, with regards to the way they feel to one, feel for one another. I'm sure there's still so much work to do. Yes, um, unfortunately there is, and um, there's so few people out there doing it, in a way which is participatory and in a way in which the District 6 Museum works, the Education Department works for people to be able to take ownership of their own stories um, and to direct the future, you know, and I think that is why we value the relationship with the District 6 Museum so much, particularly the Education Department, but the museum as a whole, because it creates an opportunity for us to bring young people and older people into um, a place yeah. 
a space which really honors the, the life experiences of people and creates the possibility of them contributing and participating in a way which influences, you know, the future. Because I think we have uh, kind of fallen into the trap of having, I don't know what to call it, kind of fake participation, where, yes, we all talk and you can all come to the party, but you don't have any real influence. Yeah, And I think yeah. that the Districtics Museum, in the way in which they work, in the way in which they honor people and their contribution and their experience, makes it possible for people to realize their own capacity to to shape the future. And I think for our young people, really, it is um, the history of the Districtics Museum is very important yeah. because people were scattered all over um, you know, the Cape Flats. So people were scattered to Langa, Mitchell's Plain, you know, Delft, Balha, not Delft, Balha, um, Mannenberg, and so on. And so when we bring young people into that space, they can begin to see a commonality of of history, you know, of yeah. where they are. Um, and that because if it, it, it happened in the past, of course it can happen in the future, that people can live together. It's not going to be a romantic, perfect one. But it is a real one of of sense of community and people being out there um, in solidarity with one another. But I think more importantly that the cultural cohesion, you know, this is what people talk about a lot these days, um, social cohesion, social cohesion. But it's about uh, people being inclusive and people being equal. And, I mean, it is aspirational and it is never perfect. But I think the District 6 Museum's story um, lends itself to the possibility and the potential of how that can develop when people are left to build genuine relations and live next to one another and interact and make music together and do the cookbook. I <laughs> love this like cookbook. That. I'm dying to go and see it. It yeah, sounds no, amazing. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, product. And But I think, you know, what the, the District 6 Museum does so well it affords our young people in our Restoring Humanity Project an intergenerational conversation, you know, because I think what we don't yes. always talk about is the shame um, and the hurt and the pain that our parents went through um, during apartheid. And so they don't talk to their children about it, yes. you know, um, or they are trying to forget that it existed. Or if they do try, to, if they do remember it, then they remember it in a normalized way of that was just the way it is, it was okay. You know, I didn't yeah. really feel apartheid. Um, so there isn't a deeper consciousness in terms of the impact that it had on their life path and the path of their families going forward. Um, and, of course, the museum creates that space where the conversations can take place with the newers and, and um, the people the, the people from the high school base. So it is, um, the museum really creates that, but also a, a space which is very forward-looking, you know, in terms yeah. as, as it is looking backward and um, remembering and reflecting of what was. It is for, for, the, for most of it, I think, for how we engage with it, it is for building a, a future of, you know, equality and justice. So, so, so for a, Tima, a really valuable partnership for us. 
Fatima, I'm unfortunately going to have to ask you to say goodbye to you because um, we've got a minute left and I'd like to just get Christiane to, to, to close off for us. But for those of our listeners who are listening and interested in the Institute for Healing of Memories, the website is healing-memories.org, a fascinating website and a really fascinating organization that focuses on the complexity of social cohesion. Fatima Swartz is the Director of Programs. Christiane, as I mentioned, we are closing off. If you had to uh, suggest to someone to come to the District 6 Museum, very briefly, what uh, would they be coming to see? I think they'll be coming to a space that feels like home. Um, and I, I, I don't say that lightly or in a tight way. I think once you enter the museum space, um, the nature of the, way, of the way that the exhibition is set up, the fact that you have um, storytellers on the floor from District 6 who are always willing to share their story, I think you you leave the museum with the sense that you've learned something about your community or about Cape Town, um, but you also feel like however you come there from, from District 6 or not, you leave um, really understanding your role, I think, in what it means to, to build those relationships that Fatima is talking about. Um, and sort of imagine that a Cape Town that is integrated, that is equal, that is just, is possible. A Cape Town that is part of South Africa is South Africa. That makes us all proud. 10 o'clock, it's time for the news. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye.